every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. A warm welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Friday, the 20th of October, just before a long weekend. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. According to the statistics, we're among the top 20 most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. So thank you very much for listening. In today's business and finance headlines, the Federal Reserve will proceed carefully with forthcoming monetary policy decisions. Jerome Powell said in a speech that policymakers will make decisions about the extent of additional policy firming and how long policy will remain restrictive based on the totality of the incoming data, the evolving outlook and the balance of risks. Mr Powell also noted that inflation is still too high and that a sustainable return to the 2% inflation goal is likely to require a period of below-trend growth and some further softening in labour market conditions. Average new home prices in China's 70 major cities fell by 0.1% year-on-year in September, down at the same pace for the third month in a row. On a monthly basis, new home prices shrank by 0.2% in September after a 0.3% decline in August, which was the most in 10 months. Prices slid half a percent in the secondary market, matching the previous month's decline, which was the largest recorded since 2014. Chinese property developer Country Garden appears to be in formal default, as it remains silent on whether it made a $15 million coupon payment by October the 18th, which marked the end of a 30-day grace period after it missed the coupon payment last month. Three creditors told the Financial Times that the company had missed the final deadline for the coupon payment, making what was once China's biggest developer by sales the latest casualty of the country's property sector crisis. The yield on the 10-year US Treasury note almost touched 5% on Thursday. It reached 4.99%, a new 16-year high. Our Fed Chairman Powell said that policy isn't too tight right now. The benchmark yield was up 9 basis on the day, 9 basis points on the day to its highest level since July 2007, and the 30-year yield broke above 5.1%, rising 11 basis points on the day. The two-year Treasury yield, which moves with interest rate expectations, dipped by six basis points to 5.16% as investors bet that a quarter point rate increase at the next Fed meeting was unlikely. On today's programme, I'm joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. And with a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. US stocks dipped and long-dated Treasury yields rose on Thursday, even as Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell signalled the central bank was unlikely to raise interest rates again in November. The S&P 500 ended the day down 0.9% at 4,278. The Dow shed 251 points, or 0.8%, to end at 33,414. The Nasdaq Composite finished the day 1% lower at 13,186. The Volatility Index, the VIX, soared over 11% to 21.4, closing above the neutral level of 20 after 105 consecutive days of closing below 20. That's the longest streak since 2019. 
Brent crude oil erased early losses and rose above the $93 per barrel mark at one stage on Thursday, extending gains over the past two weeks amid volatile supply expectations and heightened geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East. Brent crude oil settled 1% higher at $92.38 a barrel. Gold rose above $1,970 an ounce on Thursday to its highest level in three months. Spot gold climbed 1.3% to $1,974 an ounce, and it's up $150 in just two weeks. The US dollar index fell a third of a percent to 106.23 on Thursday. The euro and the Swiss franc were the big outperformers, sending the dollar index lower. The Japanese yen was unchanged at 149 and three quarters yen to the dollar. The Chinese yuan also ended the day flat at 7.31 and a quarter renminbi in Shanghai. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index lost 436 points. That's 2.5% to 17,296. The Tech Index tumbled 1.9%. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index fell 2.5% to near a one-year low. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dropped 1.7% to 3,005. It does look like, though, we might get a very small rebound in the Hang Seng at the open of about 25 points. That's 0.1%. Futures markets pointing to the index starting the day at 17,320. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Every Friday, I see Francis Lund sitting here. I know it's a weekend, and it means it's an even longer weekend this week. So yeah. great to see you again, Francis. Uh, good morning. Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities. And also with us, Andrew Sullivan. Always good to see you as well, the founder of Asian Market Sense. Good morning. Um, let's have a look at uh, China's economic data, because yeah. we did have a big data dump this week, uh, didn't we, on Wednesday? Yeah. So let's dig into that a little bit more. GDP grew 4.9% year on year in the third quarter, beat market expectations. Um, economists had been predicting 4.5%. It looks like you know the gloomy commentators on the, the Chinese economy maybe have been too gloomy. It's not looking too bad, is it? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, uh, Chinese are... Uh, uh, on pace to grow by about 5% this year. Maybe not 5.5%, but I think uh, if, uh, China will have no problem reaching uh, 5%. But the problem is that the people are still dissatisfied. There is still general gloom in China. Uh, uh, we have this uh, One Belt and One Road big conference uh, in Beijing, and uh, the Chinese leaders are uh, showing of how well China is doing, how much is contributed to the development of the uh, development developing countries. But but the problem is that uh, they drew negative responses from the people of China. Uh, many people said, why don't you give free meal to the people? Why don't you build roads in mm. our county? Things like that. Mm. So, so, so even the economic growth uh, has not generated uh, a, a well-being uh, well feeling, a feeling of well-being in the country. I think that is the problem. Why are people so gloomy? I mean, why, why is this the general malaise on the mainland at the moment? I think you're still getting the, 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 the comeback from the lockdowns and the COVID. Uh, you've still got huge problems in property. And obviously, for a lot of people, property is a store of value. Mm-hmm. And so with the, uh, 
you know, the state of the developers and the, the uncertainty there, really. Um, I think that is causing a lot of people. And, you've, you know, you've still got, uh, you know, post-COVID, um, you know, a lot of people in China during COVID, you know, their, their, their view is to save money. Uh, mm -hmm. But then they saw the economic slowdown, the export, you know, the export development model that they'd operated was not working well, and because of COVID and also because of trade tensions, I think it's just worn them down over time. Yeah. Mm. And where is this growth coming from that we're seeing at the moment? <laughs> What's driving it? Well, it has to be domestic consumption, and part of it, it may, may be a growth in exports. Uh, you look at the electric car sector, uh, China grew from nothing to all, uh, suddenly be, be, become the uh, largest exporters of uh, electrical vehicles in the world. Uh, in the first half, China exported 2.1 million mm. vehicles uh, to the world, and that is really surprising. And uh, the largest uh, electric, uh, electric vehicle ma manufacturer now is BYD, not Tesla. Mm. But I think you, you know, you're seeing a slowing in that. You're seeing the, the price cutting come out, as yeah. you said, by Tesla starting this price war earlier. That was then in abeyance because the government stepped in. But I think we're seeing that come again. I mean, we're yeah, seeing a definitely. slowdown again. So, I mean, th I think you're right, though. I think a lot of it's domestic consumption, but it's not... You know, not, people aren't built, buying things to put in houses because they're not buying houses. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, a lot of it is, I think, things like jewellery are driving some of it and some, mm. uh, you mm. know, eating out and oh, tourism. Travelling travel. seems to be a big mm -hmm. thing, doesn't it? But again, only within China. You know, they're, they're not, yeah. they haven't, we haven't seen the, uh, the overseas travel come back yet and that's mm. obviously impacting the airlines. Um, so I think it's just a tough, a tough market at the moment. And, of course, you know, we don't know the unemployment element yeah, for the for the, for the youth and the juniors but that you know in the in the u.s that's a big spending element mm -hmm. um so if they you know if that's not improving in china then uh, it, it could be short-lived the, the chinese government has often said it doesn't care too much about the absolute number if you like of growth <laughs> what they're more concerned about is the quality of growth yeah. now i presume by that they mean they want to see productive investments investment going into productive areas not yeah. non-productive areas that then eventually get reversed so uh, are we seeing better quality growth i really don't know because uh, they have all these uh, 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 new regulations re uh, regulating the uh, uh, internet. Uh, now they require uh, 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 your real, real name for all KOLs because mm. uh, up to now KOLs use pseudonyms and whatever, and people really don't know who the, who, the, who that person actually is. And then the, and and then the the, reg the authorities try to separate. Uh, uh, KOL from uh, from uh, sales uh, from uh, uh, online sales and, and that also created a lot of disruption because a lot of people make money from that. Mm. Uh, I I don't know what's what's the rationale behind it, but people said that all these KOLs uh, uh, who are uh, making a lot of sales are taking sales. Uh, away from the retailers, especially the small retailers. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether that's true. <laughs> 
I think um, you know we've we've seen a general tightening of information coming out of China, which makes it difficult for people to make you know informed decisions. That's the problem. Mm. Mm-hmm. So does this better than expected growth? Does yeah. that ease the pressure now on the government for more stimulus? Uh, yeah, definitely. But uh, it, it doesn't ease the pressure on on the stock market. We have uh, <laughs> we'll a small rebound of fifty eight points. <laughs> All of fifty eight points at the bank. It, it fell again yesterday by four hundred points. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get on to that in a moment. And Andrew, do you think? Well, I think we. I mean, what Xi really wants is to get into you know high end tech. Uh, manufacturing chips and that mm. sort of thing, uh, and and obviously that requires a lot of finance, and a lot of that money is currently and has historically be tied up in property. So that's what he's been trying to do. I think short term wise, I'm not sure we are seeing the high quality growth that he wants, uh, mm. but they don't see a problem with the economy at these levels, mm-hmm. um, so they don't see the need to put a lot of stimulus into the market. Um, they're quite happy for this thing to c- happen gradually. They mm-hmm. really don't mind if some of these property companies go bankrupt because, again, mm-hmm. that will get money, future money, going into more high tech. And that's why they're talking about a stabilisation fund for the stock market because they want money to go into modern manufacturing companies and they need a lot of finance. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to be able to get that finance mm-hmm. overseas anymore. The, the thing that stood out in in the data was that anything really related to property was not good, was it? Although we had a good GDP number, the yeah. retail sales number was better yeah. than expected. If you look at uh, investment into property, uh, that's still slumping, basically. Investment into real estate plunged by 9.1%. That's steeper yeah. than the 7.9% in the first half of the year. New housing starts, they're down more than 20% yeah. so far this year compared to a year ago. The area of property sold that was down seven and a half percent in september alone so everything to do with property seems to be bad at the moment doesn't but, it but i think that's really what the government wants it doesn't want money going into property it wants money going into other sectors of the economy and, and primarily into high-tech manufacturing um so i mean i think they're quite happy with that whilst we you know we've looked at china for the last 20 years and property has been the major driver there for yeah. the last 20 mm-hmm. years um, I think we've got to have a reset, really, and realise that that's not what she's going to follow in the in the in the you know, next four or five years. And that property overhang that we're seeing at the moment will probably take you know several years to actually really work its way out and get back to a, a more normal situation. Yeah, uh, and actually, the, uh, the 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 downward spiral of property prices actually uh, slowed down quite a bit. Uh, last month, the mm. uh, average property prices for the major cities fell only by 0.1%. Mm. So it's almost level now. I think we are finding a bottom in the property market. But that's the big cities, isn't it, where yeah. things are doing okay. If yeah, you look at the, right. the third and fourth tier cities, well, they're, not, <laughs> they're not very good there, are they? <laughs> well, I, think, I think the key thing still is the fact that you know, the, 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 the focus that they've got is that people have started paying for these properties, they will get those properties. So mm-hmm. But until they get those properties, I think a lot of people, are, and this goes back to what Francis was saying earlier, this is why people are, are slightly depressed. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, they've got through COVID and the property prices aren't going up anymore. Some mm-hmm. people don't know whether they're going to get their property. Um, it's it's not a good scenario to wake up every morning to. Yeah. So I think once people have, you know, once the, the developers have been forced to develop those ones, it, it'll just be that they will then slow down. Yeah. And, and certainly the private developers, well, if they go bankrupt, they don't mind. You know, it'll it'll roll over into the, the state-owned 
uh, construction companies, and that will give the government a lot more control over you know how much money goes into property. Mm. Well, on the property front, it looks like Country Garden is yeah. in default. Um, the the deadline it was a bit confusing as to whether it was October the seventeenth or the eighteenth. But even if it was October the eighteenth, that it's deadline has passed. gone. Yeah. Uh, they missed a fifteen million dollar coupon payment a month ago, so this mm. is the end now of the thirty day grace period. There are yeah. creditors who have been telling the Financial Times we haven't been paid. Mm-hmm. So how big an issue is this? Well, I think uh, Mr. Yang just has to sell uh, his other, uh, f- his other uh, four, jets. four jets. He has four jets. He sold one <laughs> of them. He has to sell uh, the other three too. Uh, I think uh, it's really time for him to 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 dip in his own pockets and pay the creditors. But he hasn't got enough. <laughs> I, mean, this is a, I mean, if you look at the amount of debt uh, yeah. that, there, that there is there, I mean, yeah. it's uh, what, $187 billion of liabilities. That's yeah. a lot of jets. Yeah, it's one trillion yuan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, it, it, I guess, you know, it was a darling of the market a couple of years ago, but that was when, you know, money was cheap. And again, this is going to cause, a, you know, it, it's not going to be as much as a surprise as maybe you know, the first one which was Evergrande and again mm. Evergrande we haven't seen that one resolved yet mm-hmm. so I think the, the reality is that it's just going to take a long time to work its way out and, mm-hmm. and again the, the court system of, of clearing a lot of this stuff is going yeah. to take time as well yeah. Um, they don't really have a mechanism for that on the mainland, no, do they? There no, is here in Hong Kong, yeah. but there isn't a, mechani- a court system mechanism for dealing with this type of situation. They don't have a good, uh, a complete uh, bankruptcy law. You don't mm. have Chapter 11, 13, things like that. Mm. And I think that the last bankruptcy proceeding was against uh, Guangdong Investment. I think it took something like 10 years to resolve that. Are there wider implications for the property sector and even the economy overall of, of what's happened with Country Garden? I mean, it's, it, it was, wasn't it, at one stage, the biggest developer yeah. um, in, in, the, in the country? Well, I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, property is, you know, I mean, this was the whole point about, you know, Xi coming out with his dual economy. It was, it was you know, trying to get better domestic consumption, uh, not just people buying property as a store of value but you know he was going along about houses for living and well that was about you know the fact that i think a lot of the chinese people look at a at a flat in the same way that indian people look at gold it's it's something that <laughs> it's a store of value it's not something we're going to use mm-hmm. look at it uh, we're not going to rent it out because mm-hmm. tenants tenants don't look after it we'll mm-hmm. just have it sitting there so it's it's been a good you know it's been an investment because it's gone up over the last 20 years um, that's now going to change but it's the government wants that change to occur mm. So what happens next? I mean, it's in default now, isn't it? So yeah. It's offshore bonds anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens now? Is, is there I, sort of like a disorderly collapse or is there some yeah. mechanism for sorting this out? I think the creditors will, will, will put them into liquidation, into the bankruptcy court, I think. In uh, Hong Kong? In Hong Kong, I think the bankruptcy proceedings will proceed and then you will see eventual uh, liquidation of Country Garden. Does it have any assets in Hong Kong? Minimum. Very little. Very little. I think they're mainly in China. But that, mm. that is a big problem. I so, don't think you so can get that, your hands on them. <laughs> so that's going to be ring-fenced, isn't it? Yeah. The, Hong, the overseas creditors aren't going to be able to touch that. 
Yeah. Well, I, think, I mean, I think you're going to have to find a solution to this because, I mean, obviously China going forward is going to need to borrow money and have investment. Uh, and if it can't resolve these matters with the property companies, then for other things where it needs money like high-tech manufacturing, again, it is either going to have to pay a much higher premium because people realise there's a risk and that onshore assets are, are ring-fenced, or it comes out with a solution for country gardens so that investors in the future at least have a blueprint of what will happen if it goes wrong and the government seems to be pretty clear no bailouts yeah well that's, yeah i mean they, they again i think that you know they they have got very little scope to bail this out because it's a it's quite large if they get the uh, the soe developers to bail it, out, bail it out then you risk the soe developers taking on too much debt which they've been uh, good in avoiding in the past mm. so i mean the government it has an interest here doesn't it in finding a solution because the yeah. worst thing to happen is a, a disorderly collapse of the whole group which then spreads around mm. the mainland and maybe affects other property developers well, I think you've already seen the property developers effect. I mean, once Everground went, um, you, you've seen the, the pressure that all the other developers suddenly have come under. Um, and, and none of them are, you know, none of them are squeaky clean at the moment. So, mm -hmm. uh, I think what you do is that uh, it's like the previous ones, uh, including the Asian uh, aluminium, is that you... Uh, you dump the overseas creditors, uh, pay them nothing, and then you settle the domestic creditors mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, and sell all the properties to uh, state-owned enterprises, and they get the money and, and pay the contractors, etc., and then pay the banks and, and the domestic creditors and forget about the foreign creditors. It's going to cost a lot of money, though. Yeah, definitely. Oh. <laughs> it's just, you know, I think it's, you know... You, the, the problem China will have in, in, in doing that and, and upsetting the offshore creditors is the fact that, you know, money now is no longer cheap and investors can get 5% just leaving their money in the US in short-dated uh, bills. Um, so it's going to mean that China has to be a lot more competitive in order to attract financing. And, and I think it needs that offshore money. I mean, it's good that its you know, economy is sort of ring-fenced and therefore a lot of this debt is onshore and therefore not a not a huge problem. But, it, you know, I mean, Xi mentioned in the Belt and Road thing about opening up manufacturing to other, you know, to international companies. He, you know, it really does underline that they do need international support mm -hmm. uh, in order to drive their economy forward. Okay, well, on the Belt and Road Summit, President Xi's unveiled a new eight-point Belt and Road action plan. He's also pledged the equivalent of 107 billion US dollars over the next five years. That's pretty well what he pledged for the last five years yeah. as well. In a keynote speech in Beijing to mark the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, he defended his flagship project. He cast the $1 trillion program as a driver of global growth while saying that those who view it as a threat are doing themselves a disservice. So what, what, let me ask both of you, what is your assessment of the first 10 years of the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, uh, on the di diplomatic front, I think you can say that it is a success because for the developing countries, previously you only have... Western countries dominated financial institutions like IMF and World Bank and Asian Development Bank. Now you have alternative AIIB, which is uh, bankrolled by China. And, uh, and China will actually splurge money on, on the really your needed uh, infrastructure, like, like a railway uh, in, uh, in Indonesia and port in Colombo and the railway in the Kenya, etc. But the problem of these big projects is that 
they can never pay themselves out from the operations, especially the railways, because the cost is much too mm. too high. I think you have to count the, so, uh, the social cost, uh, uh, benefit and the political benefit into it, because commercially, these projects will never be successful. That's why you have these so-called debt traps to the developing countries. There doesn't seem to be a, a proper process for assessing anyway the viability of these projects and whether really uh, <laughs> they, they should go ahead and also where the money's going. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that they are doing that now. and I mean, that, that's why you've seen the scaling back of a lot of the projects and the fact that a lot of the projects weren't the big scale projects we've seen before. But I think they've also, a lot of these countries have realised that China's come in and built these things, but they haven't seen the trickle-down effect because it's been Chinese construction, Chinese workers being imported. And I think there's, there's going to have to be a reappraisement of that because, as, as Francis was saying there, if they don't get the, 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 the uh, financial benefit to the local economy, then you know this is just China building infrastructure around mm -hmm. Asia mm -hmm. for its own benefit uh, and minimal benefit for the the host country and I think that's becoming more and more clear um, and, and, and I think also the fact that China has shown that you know unlike some of the IMF and uh, other countries that uh, have sponsored these things in the past China is not prepared to write these these loans off it, it mm -hmm. will it will extend them it will change the the interest rates but unlike you know a number of the European countries that have sponsored things in the past China is just not going to allow the uh, these these debts to be written off yeah I've always wondered what exactly how rigorous is the process for assessing these debts but it, it <laughs> seems to me what you have to do is you have to turn up in Beijing at the Belt and Road Summit tap uh, <laughs> President Xi Jinping on the shoulder and say can I have five billion dollars and he'll say for sure make it six and a half as you're a good friend now if you think I'm making that up that is exactly what happened this week with Argentina President Fernandez has turned up in Beijing yeah he, the election is on Sunday uh, he's asked for five billion dollars the People's Bank of China are going to give him six and a half billion out of a, <laughs> out of a credit line I mean that seems to be the process well I think I think where there's a political gain China's going to do that I mean yeah. the political gain there is the fact that uh, you know that one of the uh, one of the other presidential candidates has said that he, he's not going to deal with China if, uh, and, and so, <laughs> so they have a vested interest in trying to keep the existing man in power yeah, um, definitely. but also I mean with Argentina it, it, it helps them out I mean it's a big trading partner to China so you know it, it can use that uh, that loan against uh, the, the existing trades that are taking place and that squeezes the US dollar out uh, which again is another thing that's quite high on China's agenda so it ticks a number of political boxes even if it doesn't uh, make huge economic sense uh, on, on paper but presumably China's got to be careful going forward. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Francis, that mm. people are saying, well, you know, why are you spending a trillion dollars overseas yeah, when, you know, right. we have a bankrupt property sector um, <laughs> here and, and, you know, all sorts of needs uh, domestically. Isn't China going to have to make some hard decisions now about where it spends the money? Well, definitely. I think uh, domestically, I think uh, uh, according to NHK, uh, Xi Jinping faced uh, uh, some scolding from the uh, party elders in uh, Beidaihe, and uh, I, I, I think they, uh, he really has to uh, improve the standard of living of Chinese people, ordinary citizens, because right now uh, people are not feeling they are doing well.
Mm. So that means money is going to have to be spent on domestic priorities first. Well, yeah, he's, he's, got, he's, he's got to do two things. I mean, he does see himself as the saviour of the Chinese Communist Party and, and communism uh, as, a, a, as a flagship internationally. Um, and again, you know, he's got to you know, balance that with the local. But I mean, he's, you know, a lot of his recent speeches has been telling local cadres to do more you know, on the practical mm. side. Mm-hmm. And again, they don't see a problem with the economy. They're not going to throw money at the local economy because they don't think it's in a, in a bad way. Mm. OK, well, let's switch to, to the markets. Obviously, yeah. the big news in the markets, the 10-year Treasury yield, basically at 5% mm-hmm. uh, now. That's the highest level since July 2007, prompted there by Jerome Powell, who gave a speech uh, in New York yesterday. I, I thought his speech was a little bit contradictory because on the one hand he was saying the Fed's going to proceed very cautiously. Um, he was indicating that there wasn't any need to raise interest rates, uh, certainly not in the in the next meeting um, anyway, and the Fed was going to be very data dependent. But then at the same time he said this very data dependent Fed thinks inflation is still too high, which suggests that they ought to be raising interest rates. Yeah. So what, what did you make of, first of all, of, his, of what he said? Uh, I, I think you can take the middle ground, meaning that uh, we are not going to raise rates, but interest will remain high for a long period of time. I think that's what the other Fed uh, chairmen are saying. I think he's he's aware that obviously these higher rates, they will take time to have an impact on the economy. He he was stressing the fact, I mean, the initial claims numbers dipped uh, again, which again shows tightness in the labour market. Um, we, you know, you're still seeing a resilience in the U.S. consumer, mm. um, although you are starting to see, you know, a lot of the consumers aren't buying the, the, the uh, you know, the heavy uh, things like cars, you know, big mm. items for the household. So it, it's having an effect, but it's 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 going to take time for that to work through, and he's waiting to see that work through. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, as, as Francis says, there, inflation is too high in 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 the U.S. for for what their mandate has uh, predicted. I mean, if you look at the data, I mean, if you look at um, core CPI, it looks like the disinflation period is over. It's sort of bottomed out. Mm. The, the last three months seem to suggest inflation has bottomed out, and it's going to be quite hard to get it down that next 1% or so to, um, to the target. But then if you look at the economic data, like retail sales, it shows the economy is still powering ahead. So on that basis, the Fed should raise rates, shouldn't they? Well, that's the dilemma that they've got, and I think that's why they're waiting. You know, they're taking this wait and see attitude to actually see, you know, what you know, what the data is going to show them over, th- you know, not over two months, but maybe over six months before they decide. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the markets were really still saying that uh, you know rates will stay higher, but they were bringing in that rate cuts could happen slightly sooner in 24 than than mm-hmm. they'd previously been indicating. But I mean, that's a, you know still a long way out, uh, and a lot could change in the meantime. But 10-year rates at 5%, 10-year yields at 5%, this is significant, isn't it? It's going to have a big impact. Well, look at mortgage rates. They've now hit 8% 8%. in the the US. It's going to have an impact, isn't it, on a whole range of asset classes? I don't think, I mean, I think that we can get over-worried by this, but... Yeah, the housing data has slowed, but I mean, a lot of people in the US are on fixed mortgages. Mm-hmm. The thing is, they won't move. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've managed to refinance three, six months ago, you're not going to refinance now at eight and a half percent. You're going to sit in your house and you're going to start doing your home improvements and things like that rather than moving. Um, but you, you for a lot of new sales. 
Well, yeah, new sales are slowing, but again, yeah. that, that's not that's something that the Fed is quite happy to see happen mm-hmm. because again, that that's going to reduce the impact of inflation. I think for the big the bigger problem is going to be for a lot of the companies that have to refinance, uh, and a lot of the the private equity companies that have financed mm-hmm. and put a lot of debt mm-hmm. into companies that they've done management buyouts with. Um, and I think that could be a big problem for you know six months or a year down the line when mm-hmm. when the, when the short term financing runs out. Mm. And what about the poor Hong Kong market? Every time I speak to someone on this show, they indicate that maybe we're near a bottom and we're going to see a rebound. But yet, look, once again, yesterday, down 2.5%, the Hang Seng. It's now down 12% since the beginning of the year. It's the worst performer globally among the major stock indices. Is it going to bottom any time in our lifetime? Uh, Well, (laughs) I mean, I was talking to an investor. I mean, I think the, the trouble is that over the last... Two three years, the fact that China suddenly changed policies made a big impression on people, and the people lost a lot of money. And I think there's a lot of investors out there that, mm. until they've forgotten how much money they lost <laughs> over the last twelve months, <laughs> they're just not going to invest. And, and the reality is that you know the people that are investing at the moment, it's they're either investing and in preserving their capital where they can, or that they have to be invested because they're running an Asia fund or a China fund. Yeah. Um, but the you know the trend the money that can move has moved elsewhere. Yeah, the problem is there's no money in the market. Uh, U.S. funds move out maybe a year ago, and then European funds move out follow follow the exit of U.S. money. Now, uh, Middle East money hasn't come 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 in yet, mm-hmm. and so we had. Uh, absence of uh, overseas funds but also it's the it's the fact the reality is the fact that the the, the funds that the, the the stocks that are listed here people aren't confident about the outlook for them because they mm. are very china related mm. we're not seeing any stimulus in china mm. and the export model if the you know if we are going to see a recession globally is is not going to work then mm. um, and historically property's been a big thing and again it goes back to if you piss off the overseas investors it's another reason that stock market investors aren't going to be interested in the market. So it's going to be very difficult for China to, to, to manipulate or to manage its way out of this and keep everybody happy. Yeah. It's difficult for the Hong Kong exchange, isn't it? Yeah, because you've got the market yeah. at a low level, foreigners selling, volumes low and no IPOs. Uh, well, they're still having their parties, celebrating many years of achievement. But uh, <laughs> as, as uh, local brokers, they're really suffering. Yes. Well, I mean, the daily turnover, I mean, if you think about it, even even during COVID, we were probably 120 billion a day to yeah. 150. You know, at the moment, we're running anywhere between 80 and 90. Yeah, um, oh, e- and even lower than that. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting actually. The, the week, the, the Monday that we had the uh, the typhoon in the morning, uh, and the, in the afternoon, in two hours, we managed to do the same as we'd done on the Thursday and the Friday. Are mainland investors disappointed in their markets? Do you think it's interesting? That earlier this this week, it well, was basically the sixth anniversary of the peak of the Shanghai Composite, and we're now down fifty yeah, percent since yeah, then. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Shanghai Composite index has stayed around three thousand levels since 2015 mm. no again at all no, nothing we're nothing. basically back there aren't yeah. we we're just slightly above 3,000 yeah. at the moment so we made four below 3,000 today I think Hong Kong's almost back to where we were at the handover as well yeah, that's, that's right um, I think right. that the, the, the problem for the mainland investors though again is that you know they're no longer seeing the, the arbitrage between the A shares and the H shares 
Uh, and they're also, China is being you know, quite restrictive on, on money, and I know through Connect you can do it and the money doesn't really go offshore, mm. but they're not seeing an advantage for being in Hong Kong. Where they can, I think they, they prefer to see their money further offshore. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Enjoy the long weekend. You heard there Andrew Sullivan, who is the founder of Asian Market Sense, Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Let me ask you, first of all, we had that big vote, or you had that big vote last weekend, The Voice, um, about whether to give greater political rights to Indigenous people in a referendum. That, that got voted down. Has there been any repercussions from that or in, in the aftermath of that vote? Uh, not so much in regards to financial markets. Um, it was an issue that was sort of beyond um, the investment community, um, a big social issue. There was some element of a blowback on the corporate sector that had uh, sort of fairly overwhelmingly supported the the yes campaign for the voice to parliament for in, uh, first nations people our indigenous community um but that would be the only blowback i think you know clearly depending on which camp was it was a fairly emphatic uh, rejection of the proposal and i think the important thing for listeners out there who may not you know want to get into the complexity is that it was more about the model and the changing of the constitution rather than a view that it was not wanting to support uh, First Nations people or Indigenous um, disadvantage. So I think in, in essence, it was a rejection of the model, and but it was quite emphatic. So more of a surprise than, than maybe had been expected. I mean, it's a lesson there, isn't it, which I thought governments may have learnt following Brexit in the UK, don't hold referendums because they tend to go off in <laughs> directions that you don't expect and get all sorts of other issues dragged into them that don't really have a lot to do with the core um, sort of arguments. Well, I think it's, uh, the, yeah, what your point's well made. In, and the one thing that didn't happen here was there was no uh, consensus um, so there was, uh, you know, there was a polar opinion b- based on political alignment, which meant that uh, the fact that there was no um, a consensus across the political divide meant that it was almost impossible for the referendum to succeed. And that is a lesson that history of referendums will tell you. Mm. I'm wondering why they even needed to hold a referendum. I would have thought that if you want to create a body uh, to advise the government, all you need to do is pass legislation to do that. Well, that's that was one of the arguments against the the referendum was yeah legislated um, rather than put it in the constitution because legislation can be amended, can be rejected, can be uh, evolved. Whereas once you change the constitution, you can't change it back. So I, it was a very difficult argument to get up. I think there were you know many many people will argue why and how and wherefore, but the reality is changing the constitution in Australia is very very difficult, um, and uh, particularly when you don't have um, consensus across the political divide it makes it almost impossible now across the tasman sea in new zealand there was also um, a, a vote over the weekend i think it's fair to say isn't it that new zealand has now voted in its most conservative government for for quite a long time yeah there are two two issues here i think um partly the pandemic and and all of that period when jacinta ardern was New Zealand Prime Minister was, you know, was a period where there was a lot of focus on social issues, on climate change, um, and all well and good. But ultimately, what really impacts most voters' interest is the hip pocket. Mm-hmm. And so where the Labor Party had failed was really in the delivery of bread and butter issues. Uh, and uh, as a result, um, uh, the 
uh, electorate overwhelmingly rejected the the idea that the focus on what are you know necessarily good issues to focus on if you can in but uh, shouldn't be at the expense of bread and butter issues which is the economy and it always is the economy i think bill clinton said it um in his famous quote it's the economy stupid mm. um that matters when it comes to elections and so that's a rejection and there is a little bit and i would like to put this in in a temperate way there is a rejection of i guess elitism um you know which sort of I think is a loose translation that you know people um, who are who are doing okay in society um, have time to spend on social issues, whereas the majority of people are really just trying to pay their pay their way, mm-hmm. and they get very frustrated with that. And I think that that reflected the rejection in New Zealand um, as much as maybe you could draw that connection with the with the voice referendum in Australia, because if you look at the breakdown of the voting patterns. Those in wealthier um, suburbs, inner city electorates in Australia voted yes, whereas the majority of uh, Australians outside of those areas voted no. Mm -hmm. And that reflects somewhat of a rejection of elitist type uh, uh, agendas. Now, on the financial front, over in Australia, we had the minutes of the Reserve Bank of Australia's last meeting. Looks like it it was a bit of a close call about whether or not uh, to raise um, interest rates, but they said they held off because they didn't have enough information. What what did they mean by that? Well, I think they've seen some trend down, but I think it's slowing. And I think this is consistent with what you've seen in other uh, central banks and other economies, uh, Western uh, economies, is that inflation has come right off from the the supply chain disruptions, but it's now starting to slow. So, and it's still well well above target. So, 2 to 3% target for Reserve Bank, and we're around 5%. Next week, we'll see the quarterly numbers. What concerns them, obviously, in the immediate term, is the higher oil prices and energy prices driven by geopolitical conflicts. Um, they have been concerned about the tighter rental market and property market in general hasn't come off, and there's a concern that there's you know that that might sort of push up again. And one of their major concerns is the tight labour market, but more importantly, the lack of productivity that's coming with the tight labour market, which is pushing up unit labour costs mm. in the economy. So those three factors are driving their concerns about inflation not coming off quick enough. Um, Against that, of course, is we have seen slowing consumer activity. Um, people are being stressed by the higher rates uh, and savings are being depleted. So at some point, they've just got to try and work out whether there's enough of an impact of what they've already done on rates to feed through to slow activity and to, to take the heat out of out of inflation. Um, but uh, the way they see it is there could be some factors that means it's sticky and they may need to go again in November. And I know the Reserve Bank of Australia, it focuses a lot on the jobless rate, the unemployment rate, doesn't it? And we had that data out yesterday, unexpectedly fell to a three-month low of 3.6%. So that makes their job even harder, doesn't it? Yeah, and but if you look at the breakdown, it was there was a big drop in full-time employment, a big rise in part-time employment. So there is some pause to say, look, okay, we, did, uh, we are seeing some softening of the labour market. Um, and uh, but overall, I think the inflation story means the Reserve Bank um, are probably at, at at a minimum going to stick with higher rates for longer, which I think is the consistent theme globally. But if they do see a strong inflation print, and there is some talk about the core inflation figure being higher than expected next week, that could force them into a 25 basis point move uh, in November.
Okay, well, the big news in the markets, of course, the bond markets, the US Treasury market, the 10-year Treasury yield almost hit 5% uh, 5%, uh, overnight. It it closed at 4.99%, a new 16-year high. It's the highest level since July uh, 2007, prompted there by Jerome Powell's speech in which he said uh, that the Fed was going to proceed cautiously, um, but at the same time, inflation was too high. So first of all, what, what did you make of his speech there in terms of what guidance it's giving us? Well, it was interesting because I think the futures markets um, took his word that there'll be no rate hikes this year. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, so, But the flip of that is that um, there will, there's still more in the pipe and um, uh, long bonds, which have 10-year uh, notes, um, as you said, heading up towards 5% are the ones that will have most impact on sentiment. So this is where you get the area of the term premium that's been priced into bond markets now, which is increasing, in, they say, the term premiums at its highest level since May 21. It's a difficult thing to measure, but essentially that's the risk premium that uh, investors are attaching to bond yields um, on the basis that they're not sure mm-hmm. um, and that you know uh, that they the future trajectory of monetary policy is still potentially higher rather than lower and that's now starting to feed through um, because even if you see the economy going uh, slowing down bond yields are moving up um, and that is that that is the the risk premium that the investors are demanding now um, because they don't see uh, an end to the monetary policy um, uh, or at least the restricted monetary policy that the Fed are going to put in place. Would you be a buyer here when you can start getting 5% on the 10-year bond, 5.5.25% on the two-year um, bond? You, you sort of feel that the risk is all in your favour, isn't it? Particularly if you go and buy long-dated bonds because you only need, um, what, a, a 50 basis point drop um, in, in, the yield, in, in the yield and you're going to get about 11% gain on the price. Um, it, it, the the reward, risk-reward is all in your favour at the moment moment isn't it at the moment yeah but if you had that discussion last month you're 40 boy 40 basis <laughs> points <wrong>. out <laughs> so um yeah timing's everything isn't it in in investments um look there's a reasonable argument for it probably what you're what 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 has happened is that you can see the amount of money i see something over five trillion sitting in money market funds so most of the money is being held in the short end and that's probably okay if you can hold five percent and you're not impacted by duration um, that's probably pretty attractive. Having said that, what going, f- you know, there will be a time, and I guess a, a couple of times it's looked this way, where duration's probably a play, and you start putting a little bit into your um, spread. So I would say recommending is is probably having, a, 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 having having a, a bond portfolio across duration. So some short, some medium, some long, and maybe trying to manage that as opposed to saying, right, let's just get duration now because we think. 10-year yields are peaking, I think that's probably a bit premature. What you could probably say is that the short end's closer to peaking than maybe even the bond yields. Toby, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. There's no Money Talk on Monday, as it's a public holiday here in Hong Kong for the Chung Yung Festival. Money Talk will return on Tuesday, when my guests will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Michelle Lam, Greater China Economist at Societe Generale Corporate and Investment Banking, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Have a great long weekend. 
Money Talk. 